0: welcome to the new mind creator podcast with your host maurice the new mind creator today i'll be interviewing barbara Smith young please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you'll receive alerts when new episodes are available on sundays at 9 p.m eastern time also please leave me a review on itunes or spotify So Barbara, what was it like growing up in Canada? Uh,
1: It it was um, kind of magical. Um, You know, I I grew up quite a while ago in the 1950s, right? So it, it was a time of, you know, Lots of adventure. I grew up in, I was born in Toronto, which is a large city, but I grew up in Peterborough, which is, I think there might have been 40,000 uh, people, and we were in the Kawartha Lakes. So I grew up, you know, canoeing, hiking, portaging with a, you know, canoe on my head, um, you know, picking wild blueberries, skiing in the winter. Um, so it, you know, it, it was really, really um, lovely in terms of all of that. And I also had learning difficulties, significant learning difficulties. So, you know, th- that was a real challenge. However, the, um, you know, being in nature and having that experience um, helped balance some of the challenges of the learning difficulties.
0: Yes, that's, uh, that's something that's really unique to you. Well. I'm sure other people, you know, have learning difficulties as well. But for you to embark upon the journey that you've been on for these years, uh, it's near to you. Um, you in grade one, you were told that you had a mental block. And how did that affect you just hearing that and how they how was it told to you?
1: Well, I, I overheard um, my teacher, my grade one teacher, tell my mother uh, that I had a mental block. I I knew something wasn't right because I struggled to learn how to read. I struggled in writing, in mathematics, and I could look at my classmates in grade one and see that they weren't having the same struggles. So to me, it was obvious that, you know, something wasn't working quite right, but I didn't know uh, what it was. And then when I heard my teacher tell my mother, that I had a mental block, being a child and being kind of literal, I actually thought I had a piece of wood, like a a child's cube, (laughs) a mental block in my head. And later I learned, well, no, I didn't have a piece of wood in my head, but I had blockages. I had parts of my brain, I discovered, that weren't working the, the way they were supposed to be working, which is a source of a lot of learning difficulties. And I feel that I was given a life sentence in grade one, like my teacher told my mother not to have high expectations, that all of my schooling would be a struggle because at that time they didn't really understand learning difficulties and they, because they didn't understand them, they didn't have a a solution. And that really in grade one, I think was when I started my quest uh, to try to find a solution uh, to overcome my learning disabilities. So that, that was really, I think, you know, if one has a life purpose. Um, mine was, you know, to be born with the challenges that I was, to have the family that I had, because my father was a scientist and inventor who believed if there's a problem and no solution, he said, it's your responsibility to find a solution. And if the world tells you you can't do it, he said, don't listen. This is how science goes forward. So I had that that belief system. And then my mother was an educator, right? She she had been a teacher. And so it's almost like, you know, I was destined to move in the direction that I did. And I'm not making light of the struggles and the difficulties. I I absolutely had huge struggles in school, but I always thought there must be a solution out there and eventually I was very lucky and very blessed I came across research that led me to create the solution to change my brain and now we work in multiple countries all around the world uh, with students um, helping them change their brain so I feel very blessed.
0: Yeah did your difficulties uh, affect your relationship with other kids, how you were able to relate to them?
1: Absolutely, it did. Um, I, Because part of the difficulty I had was the part of the brain that understands things and comprehends uh, emotional intelligence uh, that attaches meaning. I didn't really understand people. <laughs> you know, I didn't really understand why things happen, like why people behave the way they behaved. So I was very... Um, Awkward socially, and I was very, very shy. So I would be the child sitting at the back of the classroom, smiling because I didn't really understand what was going on, and I couldn't relate to a group of people because it was so hard to comprehend. If I had information coming, you know, from multiple people, I would just shut down. Um, so absolutely, it affected me socially, and I have this image that you know I was. You know looking into a room and there was glass between me and the people in the room and everybody was at a like a party and a banquet everybody was interacting and i was pressing my head against that window wanting to be part of the social scene that was going on but feeling like there was a huge barrier between me and that social scene and it was because my brain didn't understand it you know it was with the best will in the world i tried really really hard i joked that i became a workaholic in grade one just to tread water in school socially and i was terrible in sports like i had part of my brain that Um, controls like where your body is in space wasn't working. So I would bump into things. Um, If somebody, you know, was, I was on a baseball team, if the ball was coming at me, I'd want to run in the other direction because I was afraid it would hit me. Um, So, you know, I struggled academically, I struggled socially and I struggled in sports because often, you know, if you have a learning difficulty, there might be another area that you could be Good in. i i I kind of got the uh, triple whammy, as it were, like you know, the parts of my brain that weren't working affected a whole range of um of abilities. So huge challenges in social relations.
0: Why didn't you give up and begin feeling sorry for yourself because that what you described, Sounds really like a tough situation, and you're just giving us a part of it. I'm sure it's probably even tougher than what you're saying right now. Um, why didn't you just give up? Because you're in your formative years. We want that connection with people. We want to be able to connect. Like you were longing to connect, but you just couldn't.
1: I, I think it was um, again that that uh, belief system that my father instilled in me i was always um hopeful that i would find a solution like so that was i think what kept me going i had no idea what that might look like i had no idea how i was going to accomplish that but he he'd instilled that really strong belief in me that somewhere out there i would come across information, research that could help me find a way out of my challenges. So I think um, that's why, you know, I'm incredibly grateful you know to my father, uh, because I think that was what kept me going. And I had I did I had moments where I just, you know, would weep from the depths of my soul. Um, because I just thought like, you know, how can I study for this exam? Um, you know, uh, I, how, you know, how can I go to this social gathering and not understand, you know, on the sports team, I was always the last student being chosen. And I'm sure if my classmates could have excluded me, they would have. And I understand why, because I was no asset to the team. Um, so it, it, I'm not making light of, of the pain and the suffering, but there was this glimmer that that somewhere there had to be a way out of these challenges. And I think that's what kept me putting one foot in front of the other and and kind of, I talk about soldiering on, just
0: being um, determined. How was your father, how would you describe him? I know he you describe him as an innovator. And you know, a creator. Um, how would you describe your relationship with him? Well, I,
1: it was it was pretty special. I have four brothers, and I was the only girl in the family, um, so I had a different relationship from my siblings. And I think um, we shared some of that creative spirit. And he would come home. He he conditioned electricity. He designed. Um, I don't even really understand all of what he did but um, he would come home with his designs, his blueprints, right? and he would lay them out on the floor and he would expl- try to explain them to me. I didn't understand anything he was saying, but I caught his excitement. So I think we shared that, that excitement of the possibility of creating something that doesn't exist, that makes the world a better place. He absolutely always believed, you know, he, he would ask this question, what have you done today, you know, to make the world a better place? Um, he he was very much um, a believer in, you know, that we, we all have a, a role to play in making the world a better place. And he had a beautiful heart, um, you know, as when he was um, dying, the minister said if everybody had a piece of his heart, the world would be a better place. So um, not only was he he creative, he was very, very brilliant, um, you know, and he was, was a very kind and generous um, human being. So I, I can't say enough. I was really blessed. And, and my mother too, was very much um, social action. I mean, we recycled in the 60s before anybody knew <laughs> about recycling, um, you know, being good to the environment. So I think I grew up in a family that believed, you know, whatever gifts you had, you they were in service of of others in of the world um, and this belief that nothing is insurmountable.
0: What was the breakthrough you got on your quest to learn more on how to help yourself and others?
1: It was, I I remember the day really, really well. It was August in 1977. um, Mm. It changed my life. Somebody handed me a book um, and it was called The Man with a Shattered World. And it was the Russian neuropsychologist, Alexander Luria, who is one of the pillars of the work that I created. And it was telling the story of a Russian soldier who had a very localized head wound you know, during World War II. And this book was Luria under, or explaining what was happening in this man's brain because of his trauma. And then this man keeping a journal and describing his experience. And as I read, his name was Leova Zazetsky. As I read Zazetsky's story, I thought this man is living my life and I'm living his life. All of the things he described that he couldn't do after his injury I had not been able to do since birth. So it was now, and I knew I didn't, I didn't have you know a piece of shrapnel in my head, but somehow now I knew that for some reason I was born with a, a, a difficulty in that part of my brain. And I was now 26, I couldn't tell time. I could not read an analog clock. This man after his injury couldn't tell time. Um, I couldn't understand relationships like before and after or under and over anything that that was relational like all my notebooks were filled with diagrams because I'd use my right hemisphere like nonverbal um, to try to understand language so this was the first piece of the puzzle because if you're solving a problem you have to understand the nature of the problem and now I knew okay it's something in my brain isn't working the way it's designed to work and then right around the same time, I came across the work of Mark Rosenschweig, and he was a psychologist at Berkeley, uh, and he was one of these people looking at this idea of nervous plasticity. He was working with rats, and this was in the 60s. And he found that if you gave rats a lot of stimulating things to do, like toys to play with, wheels to run on, um, they became better at learning mazes, which is like a rat intelligence test. And then he found when he looked at their brains, their brains had changed physiologically and functionally. So they had more neurotransmitters, they had more dendrites, which are the branches, um, which allow for more synaptic connections. So all of these, the stimulation had led to changes in the brain, which had led to better learning. And I thought, hey, if rats have neuroplasticity, surely humans must have neuroplasticity. And I was now in graduate school at the University of Toronto and got really excited and went to all my professors and said, hey, I I think I found a solution. And they all looked at me and said, there you know, our brains are fixed, because that was a belief at the time that there, there wasn't human neuroplasticity. And I remembered what my father said, he said, if the world tells you, you can't do this, don't listen, try. So I went out and started creating um, programs or exercises to try to work my brain, just like, you know, physiotherapy, you have weakness in a specific muscle, um, the physiotherapist tra- on exercises to strengthen that muscle, so I went back in and read pretty much every book that Laurie had written that was translated into English to really understand okay, what is that part of the brain doing, and then how can I create activity to make it work really, really hard? And that was the beginning of this this work, and I created three different programs because I had multiple parts of my brain that weren't working and I saw the results it was profound it was because it was now I could do things that before even if I worked a hundred hours I couldn't do I could sit in a conversation and understand what people were saying I could understand mathematics I could read a clock Um, I I, I could navigate the social world I was able to play sports with one of the exercises I was able to navigate in space Um, and at that point I thought Okay, there is human neuroplasticity, and can I work with other people instead of just benefiting myself? I thought I need to help other people, and that was the beginning of my work, which is my middle name, Aerosmith. Um, So I called the Aerosmith program after my grandmother, who was a pioneer herself, and started creating more programs we have now programs for 19 different parts of the brain and to make it accessible and available all around the world so that was um, that was how it all started and I'm deeply grateful for that person that handed me that book uh, all those years ago because it it changed my life and it's changed the life now thousands of people around the world
0: that's fascinating. You were now at this time when you were in graduate school. You were already able to read and comprehend pretty well.
1: I I could read, but I did not comprehend. Like I would, oh. I know that the because of my mother, you know, starting in grade one, she was determined I was going to learn how to read and write. So she she got out flashcards. So I did. I learned how to read. I learned how to write. I learned how to do basic mathematics. Um, but it didn't address the comprehension problem that I had. So, no, in, in graduate school, you know, somebody might read an art, one article and understand it and be able to write a paper on it. I might have to read that article 50 times. And still, even after the 50th time of reading it, I was never certain that I'd understood what the author was intending. And Luria talks about that with the problem that I had. He said, you can never verify meaning. So you walk around in a world of constant uncertainty, um, which causes a lot of anxiety. So I would have panic attacks. Um, <clears throat> and after I strengthened that part of my brain, they went away, and I I could comprehend. So yeah, so graduate school was, was an incredible struggle. I used to hide out in the library when the when the library was being closed, and I would spend all night in the library. Um, I knew the routine of the security guards, right? So I would hide out in the washroom when they were doing their routines. Like it was, you know, I worked, I studied probably 20 hours a day, seven days a week, just, you know, to get through graduate school. So, and you see that with individual learning difficulties, they either give up or they put in heroic effort and that heroic effort doesn't lead to, you know, the results they get aren't commensurate with the amount of effort they put in, and that that's absolutely my experience. And we've done imaging now in the brains of students with learning difficulties, and that's what we're seeing in their brains: that there are areas that are underconnected, and that's where the difficulty is, that that aren't performing the way they should, and then parts of the brain hyperconnect to work really, really hard to try to do the job. Of the underconnected areas, but they can't because they're not designed to do that. So you get a brain that's working really, really hard, but not efficiently, which is exactly the experience of those individuals and like myself in the classroom working really, really hard, but not efficiently. And what we're seeing as individuals go through the work that I've designed is that those underconnected areas start to strengthen in connectivity and the hyperconnected areas then can reduce they don't have to be hyperconnected and they can do the job they're designed to do because the other areas now are functioning so you get you get a lot of freed up energy in the brain you get faster processing speed better working memory uh, better thinking problem solving planning uh, just a much more efficient brain and we also see creativity improve because all those areas that were having to work so hard and were inefficient now are freed up to be creative, right? It's, it's really, really exciting.
0: It's, it's definitely exciting because I'm thinking people with learning difficulties, they could benefit, but just everyday people as well. Because if we're not exercising our brain uh, and using it, it could atrophy in some areas, I would think, as well.
1: It, it, de- it definitely can, and we have worked with um, school children in mainstream classes that don't have learning difficulties and seeing the benefit, like, you know, in attention and, again, working memory, uh, fluid intelligence, reasoning. Uh, we've worked with people... Put up my hand as I'm getting older, you know, and my processing is slowing down a bit. So we've worked with, you know, um, to reverse, you know, kind of cognitive decline in aging. I've worked with lawyers, psychiatrists, you know, professionals that you know, want a competitive edge and want to sharpen um, parts of their brain. We just did a study in Australia with uh, people in addiction and recovery for addiction. Um, And there's one of the programs which helps with insight, right? So if you're recovering from insight or sorry, recovering from addiction, the more insight you have, the more you can benefit from the therapeutic process. And that's what we're seeing um, with this group. So that's really exciting. Uh, I really, I'm heading off to Madrid next week and talking to some people in the criminal justice system. I really want to work with young offenders. I've had mm-hmm. some by the courts um, because they don't have good consequential thinking, so they get into trouble. Uh, we strengthen that part of the brain. These individuals that I worked with probably 30 years ago never had um, repeat trouble with the law. So there's there's huge application. I mean we all have a brain and if there you know is either a glitch or a challenge, we can strengthen that. Or if somebody just wants to improve, um, you know, competitive edge, uh, you know, we can do that too. Like to me, it's. I think the brain is is our next frontier, and there's so much we still don't know and understand. Um, so it's it's really really exciting.
0: It is. It is just listening to you. And what were some of the exercises that you began doing? Uh, In the 70s, and uh, after you got this information?
1: So, uh, one, I think I'd mentioned that I couldn't tell time, right? Because the part of my brain that made connections wasn't working. So, if you think about an analog clock, um, you know, it has an hour hand and a minute hand. To interpret the time, you have to understand the relationship between the hour and the minute. Like, you know, as it travels 60 minutes, the hour is moving through one hour. And I I couldn't do that. Like just, it was like Greek. It meant nothing to me because um, I didn't make that connection. So I thought, after you know, reading Lurie's work, how do I work that part of my brain to see connections? So I thought, okay, I'm gonna design a program using clocks. Um, not that I wanted to learn how to tell time, which I did, but I wanted to force. That part of my brain to process relationships. And we now have a program, you know, that can start at a one-handed clock if somebody really has pretty significant difficulties. And we have a 10-handed clock. And not like there's any 10-handed clock in the world, but it's it's processing 10 relationships simultaneously. And the hands move backwards and forwards. And at that point, your brain is supercharged. Probably when the person masters the level which we call the fours um, they're probably average but the goal is if we can is to take a function that was underperforming not just to average but to build a strength there to bring it to above average or we can start somebody that's average in that and we can bring them to above average so so the idea is you identify um, what is the job of that part of the brain and then you create a, a task that's going to Try to make that part of the brain work really hard without the support of other parts of the brain, because so, we don't want to use those hyperconnected parts that are compensating. We want to target where the the difficulty is. So that that was um, you know, one of the exercises. Another one, the one for the part of my brain that that um, sort of mapped where my body was in space. I created this whole exercise that I had to do with my eyes closed, um, and I had to um learn from sensory feedback from from how much my muscles had moved in um in space and i've used that with a, a butcher that had that problem so imagine if your job is you know to cut things with a sharp knife in one hand but not know where your other hand was and so mm. for adam his hand was all cut up right um, yeah by accident or, and I worked with somebody on the equestrian team because you control the horse by the amount of pressure she would overpress or underpress because she couldn't regulate that. So that exercise I created with my eyes closed has been used actually someone on the Olympic ski jump team um, because he would be always following, falling because he kind of just misjudged just a little bit where his body was in space. Um, so there's huge, huge application, you know, for, you Um, this work. Anybody can benefit.
0: And when you began doing these different exercises, how long before you began playing sports? Because I remember hearing you said that you had began playing sports.
1: Yes. So it was probably, um, I would say it, it took about 10 months like but but working between three to five four hours uh, per week on the on the exercise because the thing is there is neuroplasticity the brain can change and it's changing all the time. but to make really significant meaningful strong changes it take, it takes work just like you know if you go to the gym for five minutes you know every other week you aren't really going to um, you know develop the muscle or the reflexes, or the, you know, the strength, so similar idea. So I would say, you know, it was between eight to 10 months. Um, but then what's really positive is once the brain's changed, I didn't have to continue to do the exercises, because now my brain is getting the stimulation through uh, working efficiently and effectively. It, it's, it's, it's getting the stimulation within the neural networks, whereas before, because there was a difficulty, it was uh, a drag on those neural networks, like it was slowing the neural networks down, it was causing this hyper Now it's engaged, and it's working the way it's supposed to be working. So once the person gets the cognitive gain, they just run with it. Like it, it's, you know, I'm now like, over 40 years out of the program, and there's no drop off of function, and I don't have to keep doing the exercise. And we see that I've tracked people 10, 20, 30, 40 years out of the program and the gains that they left with are the gains that they continue to have.
0: That's so fascinating to me. Uh, You've done a tremendous work by embarking on all these, you know, on this and your father was an instrumental person for you not giving up because he, you know, he gave you that part, you know, find it. You could, you know, in so many ways you can do it. And, Wow, that's just fascinating. And how would you define neuroplasticity?
1: It, it, neuroplasticity is, in, in simple terms, it, it just means our brain can change, and it can change at a physiological level. So it means that um, if we, you know, keep active, like keep keep mentally active and even physically active, is good for the brain. If something's, you know, like aerobic. Exercise for your heart; it will also be good for your brain. So neuroplasticity means our brain can change, and interestingly, it can change in positive ways or negative ways. Right? It just can change, Um, and we want to ensure that we're changing in positive ways. Um, So things that we can do in in our life is um, keep mentally active. You know, we hear these ideas of you know crossword puzzles, Sudoku. It can be Learn a new dance routine. Like, you know, you've always wanted to learn salsa dancing. Go out and learn salsa dancing. Um, you know, when you're driving to work, take a different route. Like anything that, that breaks up routine and where you have to learn something new, that is good for your brain. That is, that is really positive. other things that are really important exercise um and it, it can just be walking like going out and doing a brisk walk 20 minutes a day five days a week is good for your brain it doesn't have to be you know joining the gym and doing a gym membership um sleep is really important uh we you know often hear that we're a sleep deprived society like sleep deprivation is not good for your brain so you need to get. A good amount of sleep. And then there's lots of research looking at nutrition. Um, you know, people can investigate that like the Mediterranean diet. There's a mind diet. It's just really basically healthy, healthy eating um, and reducing stress. Like stress is um, really not a positive thing to the brain. Like it, it um, generates cortisol and you can think of cortisol. I'm exaggerating here bit, but like an acid bath for the brain. Um, So reduce stress, like, again, go out and walk in nature, Um, you know, meditate, Um, you know, think of things that you're grateful for. There's so many things we can do, just incorporating in our daily lives that are really um, neuroprotective, good for the brain, drive, you know, uh, positive neuroplastic change, you know, change our brain in positive ways. So I, I would just there's any take-home message for people is, you know, find the things that are are good for your brain and engage in them on a daily basis because our brain shapes who we are. It shapes our relationship to ourselves, to other people, to our world. It's so, so important.
0: Where can people find your best-selling book, The Woman Who Changed Their Brain?
1: Uh, it's on uh, Amazon, probably it's the easiest place to find it now, because it, it was uh, the first version was published in 2012. And then there were two revisions, 2017 and 2019. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, Amazon has it is probably the, the easiest place or if you have a favorite bookstore uh, like a local bookstore you can probably go in and just say I'd like to order a copy and they can they can get a copy Um, and and there's lots and lots of information on our website as well which is uh, arrowsmith.ca there's a wealth of information there in terms of the cognitive functions uh, how they play out in people's lives there's actually a cognitive questionnaire that people can do for free that will give them a snapshot of their, their learning profile. Um, and then if they want to you know, call or email us, we've got people that would be happy to have a conversation around you know, that profile if they have questions. Um, you know, we try to make as much available uh, without a fee as possible to give people insight and understanding into their brains.
0: I'm going to make sure to put all of the information that you gave me into the description so people could have access to that and even if they wanted to work with you as well. So, uh, What is your one to grow on? What valuable piece of information would you like to leave our audience with?
1: Can I leave with two? Sorry.
0: <laughs> of course. Of course. So
1: I, I think one, be good to your brain. And, and what, what I just said, whatever you can do to be good to your brain is going to add quality to your life for all of your life. So really do that. And the other is, um, I think nothing is insurmountable. Like it's, you know, that message that my father gave, if you have a challenge or a problem in your life, go out and see if you can figure out a solution. And that solution might be finding the right person to work with. Um, It might be finding, you know, the right treatment. Um, you know, It doesn't necessarily mean you have to create your own program. I had to because there was nothing there. But, but if somebody says something's not possible, I would say do not listen and go out and find a solution that works for you.
0: Thank you for listening to The New Mind Creator Podcast with your host, Maurice, The New Mind Creator. This podcast has been sponsored by Abundant Sports and True Serum. Head over to www.mauriceflourinary.com to receive more motivation and insight to help create your new mind.